And now, a shameless plug. Trolls, Hulder, and Draugr, oh my. Join the family of the Thorolfsons as adventure finds them at every step, told in a style similar to that of the Icelandic sagas mixed with folktale stylings, this book explores the fantastic as it explores the world through the eyes of a family in an undisclosed Nordic setting. Foxes, wolves, dragons, and more will test the mettle of this unsuspecting family as they hold true to their heathen values and explore the unseen world around them. Through all these tribulations, they learn the most important lesson of all. Family is everything. Up now on uh, the Kindle ebook shop as well as on Amazon.com, you can find my book, The Saga of Bjorn Thorolfsson. It's available in paperback and in ebook format. So give it a check out. This is a story some of you may be familiar with from my channel that I've been telling for a little while. It's finally been finalized and put together into book form. So check it out and uh, let me know what you guys think. And now, back to the show. Hi there, I'm Eric Wordweaver Shervin, Gothi of the Ridgar Folk here in East Texas, and I would like to welcome you to The Raven's Call. This is a platform where I like to express uh, kind of my take on heathenry. I talk about different heathen-related subjects, whatever strikes my fancy, sets my mind on fire at the time. Big UPG warning at the top of this, I am not what you would call a hardcore recon, I am not a fluffy bunny, I'm somewhere in the middle. I like to uh, have roots in the old and free growth towards the future. I'm very big on tribal identity, uh, and, and yeah, you've seen some of my recent videos on that, you'll know kind of where I'm going with that. But anyway, keep in mind that my views are my own. They don't necessarily reflect the views of greater heathenry uh, in our area, let alone across the world. And they, they don't even necessarily reflect the views of the rest of my tribe. Uh, they're individuals with sovereign hearths and their own ideas and ways of going about things. We have a tribal culture, uh, but then the individual hearth cultures are their own. So. Keep that in mind as we go forward, and uh, just take from it what you will, and, and go from there. So, if you guys like what you see, please hit subscribe down below, give it the thumbs up, give it a like, and uh, let me know that you guys enjoy these things. Give me comments, all of my contact information is down below. You will find email, the Facebook group, there's a snail mail there in case you would want to send anything. Not sure why you would want to send anything, but anyway, there it is. Uh, in case you want to send a letter or some, something like that. Um, <laughs> It's there, I don't know, it's a P.O. box. Anyway, today we're gonna to talk about an interesting concept that I just kind of take for granted. And then I never really thought about, you know, putting it on the channel, but as I was having some conversations with my tribe and our surrounding folk community, uh, it, it dawned on me that this isn't necessarily something that's common knowledge or necessarily something that everybody's thought about. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Jotun in relation to the gods and how that interaction goes. Now from the lore, we have a lot of mentions of the Jotun and, uh, you know, most of the time it's boiled down into the simplest fashion of you've got the gods and their adversaries, the Jotun, which is an oversimplification of things. If you really get into the god stories, if you really get into some of the folk stories that go along with it, the Jotun themselves are not necessarily what they would be portrayed as in that simplistic of form. They are in and of themselves a complex culture of a number of influences and things like that. 
Now, I'm not going to be, I'm not one of those that's a Roku through kind of guy. You've seen my video on Roku through, hopefully. If not, you can go back and look. Um, there are baleful whites, there are baleful Jotun, and then there are ones that are not so much baleful. Um, one of the key things is that we always translate Jotun to mean giant. And that's something that, you know, has, I, mean, I get it, it's Jotun, giant, etc., etc., etc. But when you break down the context of everything within the stories, you find that Jotun doesn't necessarily mean this big monster out in the wilds, but rather is someone who is other from the tribe. Now, I am one that is more of the it's a sticky term to say tribal heathenry because there is like a racist element of tribal heathenry that takes that and, and runs with it. Uh, and I'm not down with that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I'm not down with that. Um, and there's some back and forth I have found in some modern societies as far as the Innengarth versus Utengarth idea. I'm going to do another video that goes specifically into Innengarth, Utengarth again, a revisit. Uh, but with a modern context and kind of look at um, some of the dangers and pitfalls of, of an overly black and white concrete view of Inengar Even though it is, I don't know, I'll explain it in that particular video, but just understand, I understand that there are complexities to these concepts that sometimes get lost in the big watered down media frenzy that we see on like Facebook and things like that. There are gen gentle nuances that don't necessarily translate well to these particular platforms. We'll come back and we'll see, okay? So this is something that I wanted to explore though, is that the Jotun themselves are another race. You know, you've got the Aesir, who are one tribe of gods. This is this tribe, this, this family, clan gathered around central leadership. Um, they're not all necessarily related, if you look at the lore. I mean, it's Odin is the father of some of the gods, but not all of the gods. So these clans are gathered around Odin and his leadership within uh, Asgard, etc., etc., etc. Now, you've got the Vanir, who I've got some interesting ideas on the Vanir. Um, actually bouncing that around with a good friend of mine who is a hardcore recon, and he and I are having some fairly interesting conversations on this, and I will do a video on my take on that here in the near future, uh, but not just yet. I'm going to get there. But anyway, the Vanir themselves are a different tribe, and then you've got the Jotun, who are themselves a different tribe yet. And even then, I think within the Jotun, there are different tribes within the Jotun. Because uh, if you look at like the sons of Mospelheim versus, say, the Frost Giants or the Storm Giants, um, these are different cultures, some more baleful than others. Some of them, uh, just as generalized Jotun, are not necessarily even tied to elements per se. Now, the gods themselves are seen as gods of order. Uh, the Aesir come in, and in, in, in the cosmogony of things, when we are the, in the creation of the universe, in the creation of the Nine Realms, in the creation of Asgard, Midgard, Odin, Vili, and Ve slay Ymir in the Primus Sacrifice, and they use Ymir's body to create the worlds. This Uryotan, the, the first Jotun there, is primal chaos, 
um, primal power without form necessarily, a chaotic entity that is not bound by order per se. And as is evidenced by when you go through and look at the siring of the subsequent Jotun, it doesn't necessarily follow any rhyme or reason. Why? Because Jotun are of chaos and the gods are of order. And so there's more of a directed lineage when you come with interaction with the gods versus the Jotun, which is a little more nebulous because they are chaotic in nature. Um, the gods, being gods of order, create the society of order, and then those entities that are of chaos are outside the yard. So you've got the yard of the gods, the Garth of the gods, and then you've got beyond that, in the Utengarth, you've got the Jotuns. And so these agents of chaos frequently do find themselves to be enemies of the gods, uh, simply because of the way things go out. Um, to make order from chaos, there is a violent action of almost subjugation in the forging. It's like forging a sword out of steel. It's done through force. It's done through uh, directed will. And so that's necessary in the forging of order from chaotic elements. And so you've got frequently when like Jotun come into the tribe, say with Skadi, uh, this is an agent of chaos who's entered in but then is brought in through order. Because if you look at the way that she came in and demanded her price for her father's death, um, the gods set out a series of obstacles through which she must go through in order to choose her husband, that is her price for her, her life price for her father's death. And uh, through that, they put her through this ordeal of order and she is brought into the world of order. And even then, because of who she is when she's tied to Njord, uh, that is, uh, there, there's a, still a disconnect, you know, because they can't necessarily fully exist in each other's world. And so it's a fascinating thing. And I also find it fascinating that Skadi is tied with Njord, who is from the Vanek tribes, as opposed to originally from the Aesir tribes. They were bound, bound together after the Aesir Vanek war. Um, it's just interesting to me. Uh, it may be worthy of another video later on. I don't know. We'll see. So, but then you've got other elements such as Thor, one of the prime gods, one of the big three as far as the male entities within the Aesir. You've got Thor, and Thor is born of Odin and Jord. It's of Odin the Allfather and Jord, a giantess of Earth. Um, so Thor comes from a mixture of tribe and outsider. Uh, and you'll notice that Jord is not necessarily brought into the tribe like the rest is. Now, Thor is, through his birthright, brought into the tribe, but uh, we do not have subsequent mention of Jord being a character within the mythos as being an entity that is brought forward. Does she cease to be? No, of course not. Simply that she's not necessarily of the tribe, which our mythos focuses on the stories of the tribe of the gods. And so, that is, the view that we have is from the, the tribal uh, Inengarth of the gods. That's what we focus on here and the interactions of the tribe of the gods, the yard of the gods with the yards of others. So um, just like with um, uh, Thor's journey to Utgard Loki, uh, he goes into Utgard, into the outer realm and meets with Utgard Loki, the Loki of the outer world. And he's this giant. And of course the full story and everything is, and it's a wonderful story. It's one of my favorites. I love it. I love to tell it. But Thor goes through all of these adventures and everything, and he steps into another world. He steps into their sovereign space, 
and they're not evil to him, if you'll notice in this particular story. They're just other. They're something else entirely. And so they're not of the gods. They wield powers that even the gods can sometimes fall victim to, such as when Thor is said to wrestle with old age. And even the gods themselves fall to this, which ties in, of course, to Edun's apples and the rejuvenating energies thereof, uh, the, the quasi-immortality that the gods get to enjoy. And with that, you've also got him lifting Jormungandr. You've got him uh, drinking from the horn that is set into the sea. Uh, they have these powers, these magic powers that are outside of the powers of the gods. It's different. It's not necessarily greater. It's not necessarily lesser. It's just different. And it's disguised. And therefore, he is, through guile and trickery, treated... <sighs> He's not treated poorly, but he is treated uh, guardedly. They recognize the threat that Thor presents when he comes in because of what he means to their people, and they put up safeguards for themselves to protect their yard uh, through guile and treachery because he is outside of their yard, he is outside of their social construct, and therefore is not owed the same level of obligation of like honesty and trust that someone within the yard would be. Uh, stepping outside of those, that, since they do not share this obligation to him as an outsider necessarily, um, they are still within the tribal right to protect their tribe from this threat through whatever means are necessary in that respect. Again, we'll come back in an Ingard video to really kind of break down some of the subtleties here, because that can be taken to extremes, and I have, I've had people ask me before, I'm like, okay, we'll do a video on the extremes of Ingard probably pretty soon. So, anyway. Um, this, this bears some thought, because ultimately speaking, if you just take a very binary approach of God's good, Jotun bad, then you kind of miss the boat on some things, because this isn't necessarily true. Some of the gods themselves are Jotunborn. Some of the gods themselves have lovers that are Jotun. If you look at, you know, Freud with Gerd, he goes out and woos this Jotunness and wins her love through his sacrifice, etc, etc, etc. And so, you've got Jotun who are beautiful. We look at like the Sons of Muspel, um, the Tales of Ragnarok, this is very much a, an aggressive thing. This is, they are one of the forces that supposedly fight against the gods during Ragnarok. Um, and of course it all depends on your own tribal approach as to whether or not you embrace the Ragnarokian cycles or if that's not something that's part of your mythos. I recognize that there are some that it is not. I recognize that there are some that it is. So, uh, not my own, not my call. I'm simply using it as a reference. Now, also similarly, you know, you've got the theft of Thor's hammer, wherein the Jotun therein is trying to gain power over the Aesir by holding Mjolnir ransom and the demanding the hand of Freya is his price to return the hammer. Uh, it, it's definitely a play of power here, and it is a yard-to-yard -yard interaction. And so this is when you know, Thor dresses up as Freya and goes and, and sits in the mock wedding and everything and gets his hammer back. So it's a wonderful story, lots of fun. I think it's a later edition, though, from all the research that I've done, and is definitely meant to be more on the comedic side of things, so I don't necessarily know that it's tied to an older lay, but it might be. Um, it's, the research goes so deep, and it's, it's, it's a neat thing. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> ramble. Um, the gist here that I'm trying to get to is that 
The Jotun themselves are not necessarily by definition baleful. They're not necessarily evil. And we do ourselves a disservice in that. But similarly, it can be taken to the other extreme, a view that, okay, not all Jotun are evil, therefore we should give all Jotun the benefit of the doubt. This is not necessarily true because there are some that are of monstrous ties. There are some that are of baleful intention that do bring about, uh, that, that do have an animosity towards the tribe of the gods. They are the enemy of the tribe of the gods, and if we hold ourselves as loyal to the tribe of the gods and wish to honor our interaction with them, honor this interaction of our yard and their yards, this, this relationship that we have, if we wish to honor that, then their enemies are our enemies, and this should be taken into account when dealing with these. Uh, my loyalty personally lies with the Aesir, with my gods. And so those that they deem as enemies or as outcasts are outcast to me. And I'm not going to tow that because I do not owe anything to these outside individuals, but I do owe to my gods. And so I'm not going to upset my gods by tying with someone who might be of questionable uh, intention, especially since the, uh, they could very well use us as a way of damaging our own relationship with the gods and thusly we can go such 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 that gets off way in the woo-woo but anyway the gist here is that Jotun as a term can actually be referred to as an outsider kind of thing and I think that we limit ourselves by seeing them solely as giants and not necessarily because with the giant thing doesn't necessarily come the concept that this is its own culture these actually it's a conglomerate of cultures that are broken down into these different clans and families and everything because they're not all one and the same. They don't all necessarily tie into one another. They may come from Emir as the original root, but they have grown into disparate peoples and uh, disparate tribes, similarly to how heathens have over time branched out uh, and just humans in general have branched out all over the world and become disparate peoples and disparate tribes. So. It's an interesting thing to take into account. What does this mean for us within regards to, uh, to our heathenry in general? I don't know that it necessarily means a whole lot within regards, uh, with regards, I keep saying within regards, with regards to like ritual and things like that. Uh, but it does allow us to look at the lore from a different kind of point of view. Um, you've seen me do some of my recent videos on tribal identity and building a tribal mythos. And the reason that I bring this up in relation to that is because these are the kind of things that we need to think about as we build our tribal mythos, as we read and synthesize the lore and make it our own, as we incorporate that into our worldviews. Because the Eddas themselves are limited. They are not complete. They do not completely encapsulate heathen thought and heathen worldview. As a matter of fact, they are a tainted source uh, in that they are not pure. They are not primary sources. They are secondary sources at best. Some of them are tertiary even more so than that. Um, the reason being is that you know they were not written down by the originators of those stories or the originators of those uh, the sagas and, and poems, etc., etc., etc. They were transcribed years and sometimes centuries later. Uh, it just depends, and because of that, staunch adherence to the Eddas and the interpretations that we've been fed on the Eddas is not necessarily our own tribal worldview, it's not our own tribal thoughts. 
and I encourage people to have their own tribal thoughts, their own worldview, uh, because that's what heathenry is about to me. That's that grassroots heathenry. Heathenry doesn't come from a top down, it comes from the roots up. And we utilize our views, you know, my hearth and our views on the world is what we build our interaction with the world on. I see the gods interacting with the world this way, and this is my belief. And nothing that anyone from any other organization or from any other tribe says is going to change that for me. This is how I see the world. This is my truth of things. And I, I, this is what I believe. And so with that, we have to look at the different elements that come along with the lore and be willing to kind of reinterpret those in order to better understand them. Am I saying that necessarily all the interpretations that have come before are not valid? No, I'm not saying that at all. Am I saying that Jotun doesn't mean giant? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm telling you is that there's more than one way to think about the Jotun and how they interact. There's more than one way to interpret these interactions and it's necessary in order to get a full view of what's at play. Because if you just go from the literary sources, um, you get a very mixed hodgepodge view of the Jotun. Some of them are, are good and a friend of the tribe. Some of them are baleful and evil. Um, evil in that they run counter to the tribe. They willfully seek the destruction of the tribe. Yes, that, that tracks true. Um, some of them are oddly neutral, like if you go to the Utgard-Loki thing. Uh, herein, the gods are in unfamiliar territory, and they are defending their unfamiliar territory. Uh, if you look at it from the dichotomy of good and evil, which is not something that necessarily carries the same kind of weight within heathenry, because we don't have a hard set uh, good and evil as is set out within, you know, anything in particular. I said we, I mean, within my worldview, I don't anyway. Um, it's relative to the tribe. And so, in this, Thor is out exploring, he's out seeing the world, he's adventuring. And this tribe recognizes a threat and rallies the wagons to defend themselves. And they're not wrong in this. I mean, nothing that Utgard-Loki did in any of this can really be seen as an evil act. He didn't outwardly seek to destroy the gods. He didn't try to defame the gods. Even in the end, he told them... I mean, yeah, there was a fluting element in that there was ribbing and chiding and everything going along with the competitions, but that's to be expected in any kind of competition like that, especially if the element of the ruse is that you keep these people worked up so that they continue to go along with it and then you can shoo them away, because that's what he does in the end. We've got Loki just shoes them away at the end, and they're none the worse for wear and actually have undertaken great things and are, have shown themselves to be immensely powerful, because it's Thor and Thjalfi and Loki that go in this particular adventure. In so doing, they actually gain great renown, even though uh, they were cast out of Utgard Loki's domain. Uh, and so this is, it's, it's a thing to think about the fact that from this element, this particular story can mean something very, very differently. And what is the lesson, then, that we take from that? You know, um, if you look at it from the dichotomy of good and evil, which I hold to be not particularly appropriate, given generalized heathen worldview, then you look at the story of Utgard-Loki, and you are looking at, you know, Thor up against the enemy, and the enemy is deceitful and you know, beguiling, and they make a fool of Thor, and they cast him out, etc., etc., etc. And so this casts, from that view, casts the Jotun in a bad light. But then if you think about 
from a tribal perspective, from a yard perspective, you have someone who has come from another yard uninvitedly into your own. And so as Thor enters into Utgard Loki's domain, into his yard, Utgard Loki puts in the defenses. Is he particularly aggressive with it? No, 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 no. He's guarded with it. He measures Thor as Thor comes up, as he is, you know, uh, does the whole giant on the wayside and, you know, all the tricking of the glove, etc., etc. If you haven't read uh, this particular story, I highly recommend it, um, because otherwise this example makes no sense. But still, as they get to Urgard Loki, uh, Urgard Loki now has his view of them and has a measure of them and puts up defenses as is appropriate because he recognizes the threat that they really are. I mean, Thor smashes a mountain that the giant puts in the way to keep Thor from caving in his own head. Um, yes, he uses shape-shifting. Yes, he uses uh, trickery to protect his people. But Odin does the same thing for the Aesir. <laughs> Odin does the same thing for the Aesir. So it's not about is trickery good or bad? It's not about are we lying to other people for our own good. No, it's about protecting the Enidgar. It's about protecting your yard and your obligation to protect those people. Frith is obligation. When you have a Frith yard like that, which Thor enters when he goes into Utgard Loki, he's entering another Frith yard. And in such, this is not his Frith yard. He is not owed the same obligations that Utgard Loki owes to his own people as part of that frith web. Thor is not part of that frith web. Thor is an invasive force in this element. He's not an aggressive invasive force, but he's still an outsider coming in. And instead of being struck down or, you know, uh, met with physical warfare or anything like that, uh, they continue to have a measure of him. They treat him as a guest but maintain the position of power. They do not mean him any harm in anything that they do, but they still use their powers at hand to protect themselves from the threat that he is. There's a lesson in that. Because then, because we see the Jotun as outsiders and not necessarily in this instance as just tacitly baleful, what we see then is that we, as Thor in the story, or as Thialfi, enter into someone else's yard, we need to be expecting that these people are not going to necessarily be open and welcoming, that they are going to put up their defenses, that they are going to put, up, put on airs as far as the presentation goes to look good, good hospitality. But we cannot be fooled into thinking that simply because we are received well and we are shown hospitality that we have the same uh, right to obligation as their inner yard. It does not work that way. And if we betray that, then we are poor guests. And so there's a lot that can be taken from this particular story uh, if you explore the Jotun from a different point of view. Now, within the whole tribal identity element of things, this gives us an ability to start looking at uh, the gods' interactions with outside forces, anything outside of Asgard, outside of the Yard, as tribe to tribe, yard to yard, and suddenly we can begin to see what heathen society was based on uh, as far as 
the olden days of hearth clan tribe kind of interactions because it was very much a yard to yard in later years it would be country to country but even then it's still yard to yard um, there is a fallacy in assuming that there is a national identity uh, once the nations are codified that once norway is unified under harald harfagr that all of a sudden norway is one unified yard this is not the case he has simply brought all of the yards under his domain and that is a tentative thing that he holds through force of will in this instance um, same with any king um, it's either through force of will force of arm or through the agreement uh, the the will of the governed as it were the consent of the governed because if they no longer give consent uh, the lore is full of stories wherein uh, lords were sacrificed because they weren't upholding their end of the frith bargain um, to provide sustenance and uh, good crops, bring the yield of luck onto the tribe. They did not bring full yield of luck. The, the tribe suffers as a result, and thusly they're thrown in the well, or they're sacrificed to the gods for better harvest, and etc., 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 because they have betrayed their, their obligation of frith in this instance. So because we look at that we then start to look at frith webs and how these interact because that's ultimately what we get down to uh, it's tribal interactions are the interactions of frith webs what is tribe if not just simply a name for a frith web your tribe is your frith web it is that which you have built frith with and maintain and strive to contain um, there's the formalized tribe within that frith web, which is even the, the, the tight nucleus of the frith web. And then there are those that you hold frith with that are towards the edges of it and slightly outside. It's a continuum of things. It's not a hard set deal. Again, we're going to come back to the whole Utengard thing, uh, the, the, the spectrum element of things um, as a revisit. Anyway, we look at these things as far as interaction of yards, interactions of frith webs. And these stories take on a different element. They take on a different kind of uh, influence. There are different lessons that you can pull from it. And suddenly this lore that if you only take it face value is somewhat limited, opens up incredibly. And then we can look at the sagas. We can look at different archeological digs and we can think about things from the interaction of frith webs, of yards and we gain some more insight into how these individuals interacted how these different tribes did what they did and uh, what the infrastructures and things like that were with regards to this so that's simply what i'm trying to get to today with this jotun as outsiders as opposed to just tacitly baleful now keep in mind uh, i i very much say do not interact with the at least within my hall and my my realm of influence we do not interact with baleful whites we do not interact uh, positively anyway with um like you're never going to see me do blow to fenris uh, you're never going to see me blow to jormungand or anything like that because those are baleful whites baleful entities uh, that bring about the destruction of the gods they are outsiders and cast outs from the gods um, I know the Fenris story is complicated, but still, Olden's Bane is no friend of mine. Simple as that. Um, is it a necessary reality? Well, within the grand scope of the mythos, it depends on how you in how you incorporate the Ragnarokian cycle. So, not my own, not my call. It's up to you guys how you interpret that and in integrate that. 
And that's the thing. It's all about tribal identity. It's about your tribal mythos. It's about your tribal belief. What do you believe? Because I'm not going to tell you what to believe. You're sovereign. That's the point, is that you have your beliefs. No one can tell you what to believe but yourselves. Okay? So, I am simply encouraging us to think outside the box a little bit, to explore some different avenues, and how that can open up different windows within the lore uh, that might help us build our own tribal identities and mythos even stronger. Because then you start looking at the interaction between the Aesir and the Vanir's yards, and how that works, and what that means, especially at the close of the Aesir Vanir War, when you have uh, Freud and Freud and Jorth coming over and becoming part of the Aesir. When you look at the exchange of Mimir and Honer, and then Mimir's return, Mimir's head's return anyway, and the importance of these things, you know, you look at these kind of elements, and then we'll start looking at other things like um, these, these permeable membranes or liminal spaces, and we will explore in future videos kind of how some of these interactions can add depth and how we can continue to build our tribal mythos or tribal thoughts and interactions. Don't get me wrong, I have hardcore thoughts when it comes to a lot of this stuff. I have my views and I share some of that with you guys, but not all of it. Do not be fooled into thinking that this video gives you a complete view on how I view the Jotun. I am not Rokotru. I have some specific views with regards to specific Jotun. And, uh, well, for instance, I view Troll as descendants of Jotun. Um, I also do not see Jotun as being tied to the sacred realm per se. Uh, but the sacred realm being that which the gods forged out of the chaos and created. Um, it, it's, it's a thing, it's a whole thing, it's a worldview, and it's more than I can put into these videos. Uh, and I'm not going to, because it's not necessarily my place to tell you guys how to believe. That's not what I'm about. Okay, so, I've rambled on enough on this. Um, the gist of everything that I was trying to portray with this particular video is that it behooves us to think about the lore in some different elements in some different ways. And one of the ways that we can do that is by exploring some of these things that we have taken for granted over time, such as Jotun means giant, giant means bad. Hold up, hold up. Thor's mom is a Jotun. Skadi is a Jotun. Maybe it's not so cut and dry, <laughs> and that's the gist of it. That's what I'm getting at, is that it, it, it's in our best interest to not take things simply at face value, not just simply regurgitate the things that we have been told over time, but to question, but to think, and to explore, to apply actual heathen thought to these stories that have been passed down through non-heathen sources, that have been reiterated through non-heathen sources, that have been translated by uh, academic sources or Christian sources or any of these things that might influence the worldview itself. Because when you have someone transcribing a story that did not hold the worldview of the individuals in the story, then their motives, their individual actions can be changed in the story because these people don't understand. Someone who understands the frith web, someone who understands tribal interaction, will look at a story of the gods and the Jotun and be able to see these things. Someone who is writing from a uh, culture that is the dichotomy of good and evil side of things is going to try and superimpose their understanding, their worldview on that in the telling. Whether they mean to or not, it's irrelevant. They cannot help but influence that. And that's what we have in the Eddas. That's what we have in the poetic Eddas. That's what we have in the prose Eddas. Because Snorri, oh, we all know about Snorri. Um, Snorri definitely taints a lot of what he works with. Same thing with the Poetic Eddas, because they have been, even everybody that translates the Poetic Eddas over time ends up putting their own little spin on things. So 
These are all things to take into account. These are all things to understand. And we need to apply critical thinking when looking at the lore, when looking at the sagas, when looking at all of these things, because it's not so cut and dry. It's not necessarily as it's being presented to us. Sometimes it's deeper than that. Sometimes there are elements that are completely missing because they were never recorded to history. Uh, sometimes there are just blatant misrepresentations because of outside influences. And it's in our best interest to go through and be like, okay, no, hold up. Let me reevaluate this. So that is the gist of today's video. I do hope that you guys found it enjoyable. I hope I didn't ramble too terribly much and that I did make my point. Um, I'm not necessarily making a specific point about the Jotun per se, simply that by exploring the Jotun in a different point of view, we can add depth and uh, some deeper understanding into what's actually going on in these stories, and we can get uh, lessons such as be careful when you go into someone else's yard because they do not owe you what they owe the rest of their frithweb. You are not owed that level of trust, etc., etc., etc. That's a good lesson to take because you should not let your guard down when you go into someone else's yard, even if you're being a good guest and they are being a good host. That only goes so far. You're not owed frith. You're not part of the frith web. You do not have the level of obligation that their frith web does. So, push comes to love, they're going to push you away and protect their frith web. That's the point of things. So, that's a lesson that you wouldn't get looking at the story of Thor and Hitgard Loki simply from the good and evil enemy of the gods point of view. So there you go. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you guys. Please give me feedback, things like that. I know this one's going to spawn a whole lot of comments and things like that and everybody's interpretations and blah, blah. It's cool. All right. I enjoy it. Let's go. Uh, I'll, I'll feedback as, as I can. <laughs> so thank you guys. Hail. And I'm going to tie up before I ramble on anymore. So may your hearth fires burn bright.